Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode details the events surrounding the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. Now, Queen Elizabeth is the longest reigning British monarch in history, and one of the longest reigning monarchs in world history. For almost 70 years, she's provided the British Commonwealth with a sense of stability throughout the uncertain events of the modern world. Today, it's almost impossible to imagine Britain without its ageing matriarchal figure offering calm and continuity. But upon the death of her father in 1952, then Princess Elizabeth, at just 25 years of age, faced the daunting prospect of steering a Commonwealth of Nations through the turbulent future it faced. In a real-life fairy tale of true love and romance, King Edward VIII gives up the British throne in order to marry his sweetheart, Wallace Simpson. Inheriting the throne at the start of 1936 from his late father, King George V, Edward VIII makes it known that he wants to marry Mrs Simpson and make her his queen. But Mrs Simpson, an American divorcee twice over, is deemed utterly unacceptable by the government to be their queen. Edward VIII must make a decision. He can have his crown or his love, but he cannot have both. In a speech made on December 11, 1936, after less than a year on the throne, Edward VIII broadcasts a speech announcing his decision. A few hours ago, I discharged my last duty as king and emperor. And now that I have been succeeded by my brother, the Duke of York, my first words must be to declare my allegiance to him. This I do with all my heart. You all know the reasons which have have impelled me to renounce the throne. But I want you to understand that in making up my mind, I did not forget the country or the empire, which as Prince of Wales and lately as King, I have for 25 years tried to serve. But you must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as King as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. Edward VIII's decision to abdicate and give the throne to his brother, Prince Albert, not only changes his brother's life, but his niece's too, Princess Elizabeth. Dr Carolyn Harris, instructor in history at the University of Toronto's School of Continuing Studies and author of Raising Royalty, 1,000 Years of Royal Parenting, discusses how life changes for Princess Elizabeth following her father's ascension to the British throne, becoming King George VI. 
And so for 10-year-old Princess Elizabeth, everything changed. Uh, there were rumors that she reacted to the news of her father's accession by praying for a baby brother, but it seemed that, that was increasingly unlikely. And so although she was the heiress presumptive, as if there had been a younger brother, she would go down the, the line of succession, it was very clear once her father became king that she was going to be the next monarch. And this had a profound impact on her life. The family moves into Buckingham Palace and are on public display to a very strong degree. Her education changes. She began taking constitutional law classes with the provost of Eton, and from quite a young age, begins shadowing her father. A lot of, uh, of what the future Queen Elizabeth II learned about public duties and the Commonwealth, a lot of that came from spending a lot of time with her father, King George VI. We look at past generations of the royal family. Sometimes there are tensions between parents their children, and that has played out more recently as well. But the future Queen Elizabeth II and her father George VI were quite close, and she learned a lot uh, from him in terms of stepping into this role. So when she was 10, life changed, and it changed again with the outbreak of the Second World War. Princess Elizabeth spends much of the Second World War at Windsor Castle to escape the Blitz, the nightly German bombings of London. Despite calls for the royal family to be evacuated to Canada, George VI refuses to abandon his people and his family refuses to abandon him. It's during the war that the teenage Elizabeth makes her first solo appearance at an inspection of the Grenadier Guards. Then, in 1945, at age 18, she contributes more directly to the war effort on the home front as a driver and mechanic in the Auxiliary Territorial Service. When victory over Germany is declared on the 8th of May 1945, Elizabeth and her younger sister, Princess Margaret, get permission to enjoy the celebrations taking over the streets of London. In all the commotion and excitement, the two princesses go unrecognised. It's a rare moment of anonymity for the woman who will soon become one of the most recognisable people on the planet. In the years after the war, particularly from 1951 onwards, King George VI's health begins to deteriorate. As a result, Princess Elizabeth, now aged in her mid-twenties, begins to step in for her father at various official engagements including meeting U.S. President Harry Truman in Washington, D.C. in October 1951. Then, on the 6th of February 1952, during a visit to Kenya with her husband, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, whom she had married in 1947, Princess Elizabeth receives the news that her father, the King, has died. The grief is made doubly difficult as she's also informed that she's immediately to be proclaimed Queen inheriting the titles and duties of the Commonwealth at just 25 years of age. Four years before becoming Queen, then Princess Elizabeth had committed to her duty for her country and recorded the following message. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that 
your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow. And God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. Carolyn Harris discusses Elizabeth's transition from princess to queen in more detail. Well, King George VI's health began to decline after the Second World War. He was a heavy smoker. He had been under a lot of stress and strain during the war. So he developed lung cancer and had a lung operation. And, and so we see Princess Elizabeth, who had married Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh in 1947, although they were the parents of two young children. Prince Charles arrives in 1948 and Princess Anne in 1950. They take up these long Commonwealth tours at a fairly young age because King George VI had planned um, to undertake Commonwealth tours after the war. The family had gone to South Africa and then George VI's health began to fail. And so Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip begin representing him abroad. They go to Canada in 1951. And then in early 1952, they left for Kenya. And some of the last film footage of King George VI, he's there at the airport uh, waving to them as they leave for Kenya. And this was planned to be a long Commonwealth tour that would take them to Australia and New Zealand as well. But while they were in Kenya, Princess Elizabeth received the news I think it was broken to her by, by Prince Philip that her father had passed away in his sleep of deep vein thrombosis. And this came as a shock. His health had been declining for a long period of time, but it wasn't thought that his death was imminent at that time, or it's unlikely Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip would have left on this long tour. So they immediately returned to the United Kingdom as um, Elizabeth, at the age of 25, was now the queen. And she attracted a, a lot of sympathy and admiration that she was stepping into this role at such a young age. Her grandson, Prince William, has commented just how admirable this was in the early 1950s for a young woman of 25 to step into this role at a time when perhaps many men thought that they could have done this role uh, better, that this took a great deal of fortitude. So her grandchildren have expressed admiration um, for her stepping into this role at quite a young age. And it and it changed her life and Prince Philip's life. Uh, Prince Philip was already having to step back from his naval career for all of these public engagements and Commonwealth tours. But now he would be clearly in the role of royal consort. They'd enjoyed a few years where he had been stationed in Malta, and Princess Elizabeth had really enjoyed living there in Malta uh, with him and, and being able to go shopping and get her hair done with the other naval wives and just have those moments of normal life. But now she was the queen, and her life would be a very public one going forward. Although ascending the throne in February 1952, Elizabeth, who decides to keep her own name and therefore becomes Queen Elizabeth II, is not crowned until the 2nd of June 1953. There are a number of reasons for the delay, as Carolyn Harris explains. King George VI, he was crowned in 1937, quite soon after his brother's abdication, and that's because coronation preparations had already been underway for Edward VIII. Edward VIII abdicates and his brother simply steps into that role and into a coronation that was already being planned when the abdication crisis took place. 
Whereas for the new Queen Elizabeth II, even though not that much time had passed in terms of years from 1937 to 1952 or 1953, there had been tremendous changes in terms of technology, the transition from empire to commonwealth, the Second World War, and all of this had the effect of, of, of creating more preparation for the coronation. And some of the key items that needed to be there for the coronation uh, needed to be discovered again as there had been the blitz and the bombing in London and the deanery at Westminster had been hit. So the coronation oil that was used for the anointing of a new monarch had been destroyed in the blitz. So new coronation oil had to be uh, created for the occasion. There was also consultation with the various common wealth realms and to what degree they wish to be involved. Um, there were going to be representatives from 129 countries descending on London uh, for the coronation, and that required planning as well. And then the coronation committee uh, uh, which involved uh, Prince Philip, as well as the Duke of Norfolk, whose family traditionally planned coronations, uh, discussed the technology and how to broadcast that to the world. And ultimately, it was decided to televise the coronation, and that required preparation as well. There had never been cameras in Westminster Abbey for a coronation. So the logistics of there being more than 8,000 guests in the Abbey, the television cameras set up, ensuring that the, the, the dress was ready and all of the different items that were involved in the coronation ceremony, all of this took months of planning. And so the coronation did not take place until June of 1953. When the day of the coronation finally arrives, some three million people line the streets of London hoping to catch a glimpse of their new queen in her carriage and be part of the unfolding spectacle. The route that the young queen and the many dignitaries will take towards Westminster Abbey is also lined by members of the various military branches from all the Commonwealth nations. It's the largest pageant on earth. Once inside Westminster Abbey, the coronation ceremony, steeped in over a thousand years of tradition, begins to unfold. After the ceremony and a lengthy photo shoot, the newly crowned Queen Elizabeth II appears before the millions of people who've gathered in London's dreary afternoon weather. Alongside her are her husband and two young children, Prince Charles and Princess Anne. News that Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, hailing from New Zealand and Nepal, have reached the summit of Mount Everest, reaches Britain during the day's events an achievement described by many journalists present as a coronation gift from the Commonwealth to its new sovereign. But aside from the obvious historical importance of crowning a new British monarch and the news of the triumph over Mount Everest, the day will also become historically significant for the scale of its television coverage. Never before have so many people, millions and millions from all around the world, shared in one event together in such a way as Carolyn Harris describes. Well, royal events have long included the latest technologies as a way of bringing these events to a wide audience. One of the earliest 
news events where newsreels were present to show film footage in cinemas was the procession to the coronation of the last Tsar of Russia, Tsar Nicholas II, in 1896. There is newsreel footage, not of the coronation itself, but of the procession through Moscow. And that was another one of those moments where the public felt they were looking at this age-old ceremonial, and yet the Pathé news crew was there in order to capture this on film. And Nicholas and Alexandra, the last Tsar and Tsarina of Russia, went to um, Britain on their coronation tour, and they they stayed with Alexandra's grandmother, Queen Victoria Balmoral, and the news cameras were, were there as well. And there's some shaky film footage of Queen Victoria and her family um, at, on, around the grounds at Balmoral. So we have this early film footage of royalty all the way from the 1890s. And then as new technologies are invented, there'd be discussion and debate about whether these new technologies should be integrated into royal events. For instance, when Queen Elizabeth II's parents, uh, Prince Albert, the Duke of York, and Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon married in 1923. The newly created British Broadcasting Corporation wanted to broadcast the wedding on the radio, but there were concerns that not everyone had a radio at this time in the 20s. The people would gather at the pub to listen to the radio, and they might not take their hats off during God Save the King. So it was thought that it, it might be questionable um, broadcasting the wedding on the radio. But later royal events, there was newsreel footage and there was radio and television broadcasting. So in a way, the coronation was the culmination of this process in which the television cameras came inside the Abbey. And that seems uncontroversial today. And we take for granted that, of course, a big event like that is going to be televised. But then Prime Minister Winston Churchill was quite concerned about the pressure on the young queen to not only be going through this very profound religious ceremony where she's swearing to uphold the laws of the land and the Commonwealth realms and swearing to uphold the Church of England, but also uh, being in front of these television cameras. So there was some uh, skepticism and also just the logistics of having 8,000 guests in the Abbey and all these television cameras from various angles as well. But the Queen and Prince Philip felt very strongly that this was a way for the Commonwealth to share in the celebrations. And in fact, we see some of the earliest examples of a transatlantic broadcast that so that Canada could watch the ceremony on the same day. The newsreel footage was flown across the Atlantic uh, so that it could be shown in, in Canada same day. And this was the, the first uh, uh, uninterrupted flight to mainland Canada from the United Kingdom. The footage was brought to Labrador and the Royal Canadian Air Force was there to collect the footage so that it could be shown by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And we see some of the American stations trying to pick up this Canadian footage so that they could show uh, the coronation as quickly as possible. So we start seeing the origins of the entire world sharing in an event as it happened, or at least very soon after it happened. And Queen Elizabeth II's reign has seen all sorts of new technologies continue to be introduced into publicizing royal events. And now, of course, there's a website and a royal family Twitter account and Facebook and Instagram and lots of different ways of engaging a, 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 a younger generations in royal events and royal philanthropies. So there's been tremendous technological change over the course of the Queen's reign and the televisation of the coronation was part of this process. For those living in Britain and the Commonwealth, and even for those living in other countries, particularly in the United States and elsewhere in Europe, 
The coronation of a young new queen in England appears as something of a rebirth following the terrible events of the Second World War, the tough measures of austerity in its aftermath, and the gathering gloom of the Cold War. With her bright smile and young family by her side, she appears to represent something that's been missing in recent years, a sense of hope, a feeling that things can and will get better. Not only this, but to the British public in the 1950s, Queen Elizabeth and the Duke of Edinburgh appear as a relatable young couple, both having served in the war and now settling down to begin their life together as parents, something many people in this generation are experiencing after the war. Having a strong young woman as the head of state also inspires a generation of British women to continue the ongoing struggle for greater independence and the right to forge their own paths in life. Her power as a symbol has endured in this fashion for nearly seven long decades. Since her coronation in 1953, the British Commonwealth has gone through a considerable transformation, one marked in particular by the post-World War II decolonisation movements in Africa and Asia, and the humbling of British prestige on the world stage following the emergence of other more influential global powers. Throughout all of this upheaval, change and the ongoing evolution of Britain's prominence in the world, the Queen has remained a steady symbol of continuity and stability. So long has she now reigned that she connects Britain to its Second World War history and all that has spanned in time since then, having seen 14 different people serve as her Prime Minister, from Winston Churchill all the way to Boris Johnson. Likewise, she has reigned during the administrations of the last 14 American presidents, from Harry Truman to Joe Biden. She has outlived friends and enemies, buried loved ones, seen countless revolutions in music, fashion and technology, and she continues to weather every conceivable scandal that has come the royal family's way. During eras of domestic turmoil, whether it be the Troubles, Miners' Strikes, Brexit or COVID-19, the Queen has always been there to steady the ship and use her position as best she can to see Britain through its most trying times. Reigning during the period of Britain's transition from a fading imperial power to the centre of a more modern Commonwealth of Nations, the incredible duration of Elizabeth's long time on the throne has eased this process, making the transition as smooth as possible. Carolyn Harris talks about the significance of Queen Elizabeth II's reign in more detail. Uh, that, that had been part of that older British Empire. So we get a variety of different systems of government that have that connection to what had been the British Empire becoming this very diverse Commonwealth of equal nations. And, it, and the role of head of the Commonwealth is one that the Queen has taken very seriously. She spent much of her reign on Commonwealth tours and become the best traveled monarch in history. She's attended Commonwealth uh, heads of government meetings. And it's been noted that she's been able to exercise subtle diplomatic influence, uh, whether it was Commonwealth negotiations regarding uh, sanctions on South Africa and, and efforts to uh, combat uh, apartheid there. And 
Commonwealth leaders who said they just get more work done if the Queen is there at these meetings, and also, you know, and also it encourages all the Commonwealth leaders to attend that they're not simply going to be meeting with each other, but they're going to be meeting with the Queen as well. So the Queen has this ceremonial role as head of state in the United Kingdom, but as head of the Commonwealth, she's been able to exert some subtle diplomatic influence and have this global role beyond her role in the United Kingdom. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Carolyn Harris from the University of Toronto, author of Raising Royalty, 1,000 Years of Royal Parenting. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, David Coyle. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song by discussing the life of the only man ever to retire as boxing's undefeated heavyweight champion of the world, Rocky Marciano. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com. That's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.